great to have you here. Really good. Well, I can't see you, but it will be good to see you when you're able to actually come out to the services. And uh, we've been talking actually about rebooting, because that's exactly what's going on. You know, last Sunday, we got back to church, at least some of us did for the very first time. When you reboot, you shut it down, and then you start over again, okay? And the point is, you know, if you've got a cell phone or you've got, you know, a computer or something like that, you get all the old cookies out of it, all the old junk out of it, and you kind of ref- refresh the operating system. Now, I learned something really fascinating in university, okay? And this was years ago. And this, this truth was just blew my mind. It, it's just fascinating. It, it's a truth that maybe you've never even thought of in your life, but I just want to bring it to your attention uh, because we're going to talk about it a lot today. So here's the truth, okay? If you don't understand the lesson, you won't do well on the test. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, you never thought about that, I'm sure. You, you know, you just kind of carry it on, but if you don't understand the lesson, you won't do well on the test. Now, I actually uh, learned this in a class called History of Philosophy. And I had a professor who understood the topic really well, and he spoke really well, and he spoke really fast, okay? And I would scribble around trying to take notes and so on. But what I found out was if you don't understand the lesson, which I didn't, he understood it, but I didn't, you don't do well in the test. And so I managed to pull a C in that class, probably some of the lowest grades there. Now, as I mentioned, we're in this series called Reboot, you know, and that's exactly what's going on in our life. We're a little sick of the masks. We still have to wear those, you know, wherever we go, if we're in public places and we have to socially distance. We're a little sick of hand sanitizer. We've been kind of uh, taken off the nasty list on that. But here's the core thought that I want to talk about uh, in, in this whole series of messages, actually, and that is, what if the pandemic isn't the test. What if the pandemic, what if what we have just been through and are still going through is the lesson and the test is what happens to us, what we actually do with it and how the, you know, that experience changes us. Now, I'll tell you why I'm talking about that. For the past 18 months, the message from the media, the message from the government, the message from the, you know, basically from the medical community has been fear. And fear, when it gets pumped into your home, and it has been pumped into our homes for the past 18 months, it usually creates anger and frustration at the situation that we find ourselves in. When you're angry, when you're frustrated, you know, you tend to react. I don't know about you, but when I react, I'm at my worst. If I respond and I think about what I'm going to do, then I'm at my best. But if I react, I'm at my worst. And so what has happened is then, well, we got to look for somebody to blame. And, and so, you know, and that's exactly what's going on. And I'm telling you, this makes people their worst. When you've got to figure out somebody to blame for something that the whole world is going through, you know, that's, that's bad. So our emphasis has been caution, of course caution. The Bible talks about caution. You know, all the disease chapters in the book of Leviticus tell you, you know, that you need to stay away from people and you need to, you know, sometimes quarantine, you need to do different things. So caution, yes. Fear, absolutely not. You won't ever find Jesus saying, you know, you better be afraid. He says if you're going to be afraid, be afraid of God. And that doesn't mean, that means respect Him. But caution, obviously, caution is already right. So 
there's this, you know, there's this uh, thing that's going on in our world, and, it's, and what it did, what it has done, is it has exposed the craziness of basically trusting in anything that can be shut down by an invisible virus, which was pretty much everything. And our problem is that, you know, we put our confidence in our culture in money and success and popularity and lots of things like this, you know. See, you know, we've been told we're the captains of our own ships. Well, we aren't. We've been told that we're the masters of our own destiny. Well, we aren't. The truth is that we're not. And so recent history for us has basically proven that a lot of this stuff that we sometimes base our life on is wrong. Now, here's the, here's the tragedy. The tragedy isn't the pandemic. The tragedy, you know, is that, yes, people have died, and, and it's been difficult, and it's made life difficult, and so it continues to go on. The tragedy, though, the tragedy of this would be if we came out of this, especially as followers of Jesus, and this is all we have, anger, frustration, reaction, somebody to blame. And I'll tell you, I've seen this divisiveness. I've seen it in Christians. I've seen it outside, and it's kind of like, you know, it's about the vaxxers and the anti-vaxxers, and it's about, you know, just all of this stuff going on. It's about the, all the conspiracy theories in the medical community and the government and all kinds of junk like that. And the problem is that this has created a lot of confusion. And I'll tell you, if we come out of this, if we come out of this pandemic, you know, and that's where we are, that's the tragedy, because I believe that God wants so much more for us. Now, life has forever changed. We all know that. But what I want to deal with specifically is if this pandemic has kind of created a, a rebooting, if it's, if it's created a chance to start over, where do you want to go? Where do you want to go from here? Because to see as, as hard as start overs are, they give us the opportunity to leave the past in the rearview mirror and to try new things and to move into a better future. Now, the biggest problem is that sometimes we don't learn from our mistakes, and we're going to be talking about that. You know, we learn from the small mistakes in our lives. You know, for example, I remember when I was three years old, you know, and I was out swinging on the swings and got stung by a, a hornet, you know, and went in crying to my mom, and she said, don't swing on the swings. And, and so I, you know, cleaned myself up, went out, swung on the swings, got you know, nailed again. She went back in. She crying, and she comforted me. She says, don't go out there again because there's a hornet's nest in there. Went back out to the swing set and got stung twice. So I learned my lesson at the age of three, you know, you don't want to mess around with a hornet's nest. So those are some of the smaller lessons that we learn. But sometimes when it comes to our relational world, sometimes when it comes to jobs, sometimes when it comes to some of the really big deals in our lives, we learn. We keep making the same mistake over and over again. So I want to talk about learning the lessons and passing the tests. Now here's what's fascinating. The pattern of the Bible uh, is, is starting over. And you see this all through, you know, the things. What, you know, what the whole thing was when, you know, the people were, were released from slavery was that the gods of our world, basically, you know, with money, money doesn't care, can't save. Success doesn't care, can't save. Beauty doesn't care, can't save. Government doesn't care, can't save. Science doesn't care, can't save. Education doesn't care, can't save. That was the lesson that the people learned when they had to start over, the people of Israel, and so on. 
And what you find is that there's a whole series of startovers. And of course, last week we talked about the ultimate startover, Noah. You know, uh, the whole world is going to get washed clean and God is going to start over again. And so God has Noah build this ship. We talked about that. After Noah, okay, you'd think, okay, we've learned our lesson. Well, we haven't. There was this united rebellion against God, and it got so toxic that God had to confuse the languages, and he starts over with Abraham. And with Abraham, it's a start-over story too. God takes him out of Ur and says, I want you to go to this promised land. So he goes there, and he waits 25 years. Now, the ultimate story, of course, is Exodus. And, and so after Joseph had gone down to and, and had to start over down in Egypt and finally brought his family there and so on, after 400 years, they all of a sudden they weren't the favored people anymore and they weren't in the best spot in the land. They were made slaves. And the question is, why? Well, they enslaved them, the Egyptians enslaved them because they were afraid of them. Fear almost never does anything good, you know? And so there were the growing numbers. They figured out that they've got to somehow stop the population growth. So first they tried killing the kids, and then they put them into slavery and tried to work them to death. And I'll tell you why. You see, when you're afraid, you react with either uh, anger and frustration. That's exactly what we're seeing in our world right now. Well, the slavery that resulted you know, created a whole new brand of misery for what would be known as God's people, the people of Israel, the descendants of Jacob. And at that point, they probably numbered around three million people. And you just imagine what it would be like to be a slave. You are not your own. You are somebody else's property. They can do to you whatever they want. And in this case, they can take your babies, they can kill them, they can throw them in the Nile where the biggest crocodiles in the world are. So it says that God heard their cries that God stepped into the situation, that he cared about them, that he understood. And whenever God's going to work, he always calls a person. And of course, that person was Moses. Now, Moses' story is a starting over story too. We find out that, you know, his mom was basically obeying uh, the command that the uh, Egyptians had made to throw the kids in the Nile. Instead of throwing him in the Nile, she made this little basket covered it with pitch, and it's actually the only other place where the word ark is used. He's, he makes, she makes this little oak ark for him, and so he's out there floating, and of course, Pharaoh's daughter sees him out there, feels really bad, and adopts him as her son. So in the next 40 years, you know, Moses is basically being groomed to be a Pharaoh, groomed to, you know, be a leader at a high level. And he thinks to himself, well, I'm the obvious choice to free my people. So he goes out there, tries to do it on his own, is a blatant failure, and of course gets exiled. So the next 40 years, he's sitting out on the backside of the desert watching his father-in-law's sheep and so on. And by the time God taps him on the shoulder again, totally lost his self-confidence, okay? And he's 80 years old. He's thinking, I'm ready to retire. My best years are behind me. But what he never realized was that he had the 40 years of, of, of leadership training in Egypt, and then he had 40 years of desert survival, which would be critical in his role as a leader. So, you know where God sent him? There was a, one place in the world that Moses didn't want to go. He didn't want to go back to what had been his home. He didn't want to go back to Egypt, okay? And that's where God sent him. What comes next in this story um, uh, in this, is this thing that we dealt with in, in the last series called God's Must Be Crazy. 
And what you find is that God judges the Egyptian gods one by one. We just kind of went through this, you know. These are the gods in our culture, money and success and beauty and, and government and science and education. And the point is that they don't care about us. We may serve them really well. We may give our lives to them, devote ourselves, offer all of our sacrifices and our worship to them, but they don't care. God is the only one who cares and can save us. And so God saved the Israelites from the little g gods of Egypt, okay? So God is always at work, you have to understand that, to take down the little g gods in our world. First judgment was his judgment on the Nile River, which was the biggest god. That was the thing that produces the most, uh, produced the most in Egypt, and so God turned it to blood. And then the tenth plague, the tenth final judgment, was on their worship of Pharaoh. And God had warned him, and he said, you better let them go because this last judgment is going to be the most terrible one you've experienced. And of course, he didn't listen. He lost his son and lost the next heir to the throne. Now, the core issue that the Israelites learned is if you're going to serve a God, if you're going to worship a God, if you're going to put your trust in a God, you better put your trust in a God who actually cares about you and can actually save you. And that was the lesson. As most of you know, God saved his best for last. So they went out, they finally got out of Egypt, and they're trapped between the sea and the mountains and the army that Pharaoh sent to hunt them down and kill them all. And so God made a way through the sea for them to walk through. Three million people and all their, all their you know, livestock and everything like that, they made it through, and the, the army tried to chase them, thinking that maybe God would just keep the path open enough, long enough for them to get through, and of course, that didn't happen, and they all drowned. Now, again, put yourself in the place of the people of Israel. Being a slave is degrading, and it's humiliating, and I'll tell you, it will kill you. It will kill you because they will work you to death. It wasn't like they gave them a day off. It wasn't like they gave them vacations. Like they worked every day, dawn to sunset, in hot weather. So they get out in the desert, and they're all celebrating. Of course, they have this little worship concert from Miriam, you know, Moses' sister, and she brings her tambourine and, and does this tune and so on. And then they ran out of bread. Now, here's the question. Was there immediate thought, well, God cared enough about us to get, it out, get us out of Egypt, you know, to release us from slavery, to put a path through the sea? Of course he's going to take care of us out here. <laughs> well, that wasn't their thought. Listen to what happened. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you brought us out into the desert to starve the entire assembly to death. You get it? There's fear, anger, frustration, and they look for somebody to blame. They've just gotten out of slavery. They've just stopped being somebody else's you know, possessions. A lot of these people had scars on their back where they'd been whipped. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. And it's called manna, of course, as you, as you read through the whole story. The people were to go out each day and gather enough for that day. And in this way, listen to this, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. Well, God did feed them with manna. And then he fed them with quail too, apparently. So it was kind of like bread and chicken, you know, kind of like a spicy chicken sandwich. But they didn't follow his instructions. Very same issue of trust arose again when it came to water. They camped at Rephidim, 
where there was no water for the people to drink. And so they quarreled with Moses. Again, blame. You've got to blame somebody. And said, give us water to drink. And Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. And they said, again, why did you bring us up out of Egypt and make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Now, in this case, God had Moses strike the rock with his rod, and enough water, you have to understand, this was just incredible. This is like water kind of trickled out and so on, like one of the springs. Water gushed out of there. Enough water to water three million people and all the livestock they had. This was astounding. Now, you think that the conclusion that these people would come to is God loves us and God cares about us and cares about our need for food and water. God can be trusted to take care of us. You'd think that's, that was the lesson. Well, then Moses, their leader, goes up to the top of Mount Sinai to find out what God wants them to do, what kind of people he wants them to be. When he comes down from the mountain, you know what they're doing? They're worshiping the gods of Egypt. <laughs> this is an awful thing. I mean, you know, God leads, they saw more of God than anybody else. They, he leads them through a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, you know. And when Moses goes up to the mountain, the whole thing is shaking. They're scared to death because of God's presence there. And yet they turn to other gods. They keep failing the test. They didn't learn the lesson. They didn't understand the lesson. And again, why did you bring us out here to die? You know, we want to go back. We want to go back. Imagine that. Now think for just a minute about what it really meant to go back to being owned. Back to being somebody else's property and being worked to death. Awful, awful thought. The ultimate test, of course, came when they actually reached the land that God promised them. This happened after several months, after a couple years. So when it was time to enter, you know, time to claim their land, time to, time to let God fulfill their prof, their, the promises that he had made to them. But the reports came back from those who were leading them, you know, went out to spy out the land, you know. Man, it's going to be difficult. You know, people there are really big. The walls are really high. And they bulked, like they stopped in their tracks and they rebelled. And instead of understanding and realizing that God had, had released them from those powerful army, the most powerful leader in the world of that day, Egypt, they gave up. And they actually found leaders who would take them back to Israel, take them back, to, sorry, take them back to Egypt. Now, this is the lesson that we need to learn that we need to learn, that they needed to learn. You know, and Jesus taught this lesson too. Remember what he said in the prayer? Our Father, God cares, in heaven, God saves. And you'll see this pattern all through. You see it through this, all this story. Our Father in heaven saves. God cares and he saves. What happens is they begin talking about the good old days again. So, like, they're forgetting the fact that they were somebody else's property. They're forgetting the fact that they were, worn, they were worked from dawn to dusk. They forget the horrible things that happened there. And so they get into this process where they're wandering, and the future becomes available, and they're thinking, well, we want to go back to the good old days. We want to go back to the comfort zone. 
And of course, the interesting thing is, like, if you're somebody else's machine, if you're somebody else's property, then it's their job to basically, you know, make sure that, you know, you have enough gas or electricity to do your job. It's their job, you know, to wipe you down and clean you up. It's their job, you know, to make sure that you keep on running, to do the maintenance. Now, I wish I could say that, you know, this was, you know, just their stuff, their mistake, their dumb mistake, and so on. But I'm telling you, it's way more common than you'd think. People do something dumb, and then they go right back to it. They go right back to it. How many times have we seen that happen in public roles? You know, people making the same dumb mistake. And I'm going to use a mistake. I'm going to use an example here, and hopefully you won't, you know, hate me for this. Remember Bill Clinton? He was a bright, talented guy, maybe one of the brightest people, maybe one of the most talented people to ever become president. And yet, you know, if you remember his campaign for the U.S. presidency back in that day, and for some of you who were way too young to even remember this, but it was, ribbled, it was riddled with rumors of his sexual scandals and so on. So you'd think, you know, when I'm president, man, I've got to be careful with that. He's barely into the presidency thing when the Monica Lewinsky thing comes up, and it drags the U.S. through this awful trail of messy stuff for the next two years. Bright guy. Smart guy, likable guy. But we, we do this. You, you ever seen somebody who comes out of an addiction like this horrible, horrible place that they were in where they basically served you know, the drug or the alcohol day and night and day and night, and they get out of it. Then they go back to it. And again, I wish I could say you know, that this stuff is totally abnormal, but I'm sure you know it too. I've meet, met people, and they go through jobs like a box of Kleenex, you know? and according to them, they've had the longest string of you know, jerks for bosses that the world has ever seen, but they're the common denominator in the whole thing. There's people who go f- from one bad relationship to another, you know, oh boy, I'm never going to go back there. You, you have no idea what it was like to be with that person, you know? and then they jump right back in and get in the same mess. And so, you know, many times we, this happens to us, and we, and, and we kind of complain to God, you know, blame Him for it. Why are you doing this to me? And He would say, well, like, you're the one making the choices, not me. Remember the tendency I referred to at the start, that we tend to learn from our minor mistakes and goof-ups, but then many times we repeat the bigger, messier mistakes. We just don't learn. And you probably know that that's true. Now, in my research for this talk, I came up with three popular myths about starting over. And most of us are starting over at some level. That's what rebooting is all about. Sometimes we're restarting from something else. Sometimes maybe your business failed during this time, or maybe your relationship failed, or or something else went wrong. But I think that you'll find them really helpful. Now, here's the deal, okay? I've worked with people a lot. I really have, you know. Uh, remember, you know, there's, sometimes pain just happens. I was looking at pictures recently, and there was this picture of Bill and Kathy Titus, some friends of mine from back in Pennsylvania. And, oh, my word, they went through a horrible time. They lost an eight-year-old son, you know, in a farm accident. And then, you know, Kathy was in a horrible accident and injured her back permanently. And then, you know, Bill, you know, he's a cabinet maker, and he's working on cabinets and cuts off three of his fingers with a table saw. Just horrible, horrible stuff. It wasn't anybody's fault. It was just pain. So life brings enough pain. We know that, right? Life brings enough pain. But it's not tragic. What is tragic is when people, you know, 
choose pain. Like they intentionally, they, they make the same bad mistakes. They, they get really hurt and they do a repeat performance. You know? This happens in our relational world. It, it's, it comes in mistakes that we make with our kids. It comes in mistakes that we make with our finances and our work and especially romantic relationships where we have to learn, but we don't. And we go through the same thing. And when this kind of stuff happens, you know, sometimes, you know, the question that we ask ourselves is, when will I learn? Well, that's actually a good question because, you know, the key word in that sentence is I. When will I learn? We are the common denominator in all this stuff that typically goes on. It's our blind spot. You know, and the problem is sometimes we ask that question, when will I learn? But we never stop to answer it. And that's a problem too. And the problem, of course, with the question is, you know, that um, it's too painful many times to answer. Now, honestly, I've pretty much stopped doing counseling, mainly because it's time-consuming. Second, because I'm not really well-trained for it. But I'll tell you what I've noticed. I've, done a lot, I've talked to a lot of people. People will many times listen, and then they go off and they do what they want. What they're looking for in counseling is they're looking for you, you know, to tell them lies that will justify where they are and make them feel good about, you know, damage that they've done. And you can't do that, not as an honest counselor. So here's the question. If you're going to start over again, you want to be sure that the next time, and I'm talking about the reboot that you're in right now, the next time doesn't look like the last time. And it's important to understand the lesson so that you can pass the test. Now, there are three myths, and I want to talk briefly about them. These aren't original with me, okay, so you know that. I'm not that smart, okay? So you have people, you know, again, it's the same story, the same perpetrator, the same ending, and you ask the question, why? Well, there are three myths that we sometimes believe. And the first myth is that experience makes me wiser, okay? People go through a, a heart-wrenching time, and then they say, okay, I'm done with that. I'm ready to move on, and so on. I've learned my lesson. Experience makes me wiser. Well, experience actually doesn't make you wiser. It just makes you tireder. It makes you, you know, it makes you older. It makes you poorer and sometimes angrier. It's only when you evaluate the experience that you've been through that it actually makes you wiser. Think about the people in this, uh, in this early story, you know, their experience didn't help, help, you know, they, you know, they get into a tight situation, you know, and, and God shows up and, and meets their needs, that's the lesson, but they didn't learn from it, next time, same situation, and they do the same kind of thing, you know, again, <laughs> that's what I was doing when I got stung by all those hornets, you know, kept going back to the swing set until I finally got stung twice, you know what makes us wiser, again, and I mentioned this, and that's evaluating the experience, not just having it. So you want to evaluate, you know, what goes on. And every single day, you know, people come out of horrible things with drugs and with alcohol and, and you know, horrible ending to a marriage. And they think to themselves, well, man, I've had the experience, so now I'm wiser. And then the alarm goes off, you know. I've got you, babe. Da -da -da -da. You know, it's Groundhog Day all over again. Second myth that you want to avoid is this. Now that I know better, I'll do better. Now, how many of you in your life have found out that, the, you, know, you know the difference between right and wrong? 
Most of us do, right? We know what's right. We know what's wrong, okay? The problem is knowing, you know, not knowing when to say no. The problem is being able to say no when we need to say no. The problem isn't knowing when to say yes. It's being able to say yes when we hit the experience, you know? The only way you and I will actually do better after this current reboot and start over in our world is, you know, is if we take the shutdown time to evaluate what actually happened, what we learned, the lesson that we learned. You know, you, you may have, let me kind of illustrate this a little bit more. You may have had, you know, kids, so especially when they're teenagers, you know, and parents tend to nag, you know, well, remember to do this, remember not to do this, don't speed, you know, and, and so, and they're going out the door and they're saying, I know, I know, I know, I know. Do they know? Well, of course they know. Knowing doesn't mean that you have the power to make different choices. Knowing doesn't mean that you're actually going to do anything differently. Knowing doesn't mean that you have the willpower to make changes. In summarizing what happened you know, to the people of Israel and the message they kept getting into, the psalmist says this, and he quotes God as saying, now I will take the land from your take the land load from your shoulders. I will free your hands from their heavy load, heavy tasks. He's talking about their slavery. You cried to me in trouble, and I saved you. I answered out of the thundercloud and tested your faith when there was no water at Meribah. But no, listen to this. My people wouldn't listen. Israel did not want me around. So I let them follow their own stubborn desires, living according to their own ideas. And this is what happens. If we keep putting our hand in God's face saying, you know, go take a walk, you know, just pretend that you don't see this, you know, I'm going to do this, you know, and I know better, but I'm going to do it anyways. It's kind of like, you know, well, you've kind of made your decision, okay? And you live according to your own ideas, according to what it says here. It could be that maybe you've had a whole string of bad relationships in your life or string of bosses. And if you don't want your next boss or your next marriage to be like the last one or your next financial issue to be like the last one, you've got you to gotta do some evaluation and ask, when will I learn? And then answer the question. Answer the question. You're the one doing the choosing. You're the one, you know, you know you're the common denominator. And knowing better doesn't mean that you'll have the self-control or the strength or the power to actually do better. The right question is, what do I need in my life to actually do better and not just know better? And of course, and then there's one more myth. And this one is specifically related to our relational world, but I'm telling you, it spills over into a whole bunch of areas, and it's the time myth. And it kind of, you know, creates desperation in our lives. The time is slipping by, you know, and that, you know, time is passing us by, and we need to act. We need to get back on the marketing, and we need to do this, you know. And sometimes we just don't leave enough time there to even think about what just happened, you know? And in the dating arena, it sounds like this, you know, time is my enemy. I'm not getting any younger. My bio- biological clock, clock is ticking, you know, and, and all my friends are moving on. I just need to get on with it. I've learned my lesson, you know. I'm ready to date again. I'm ready to live a normal life again, you know. I don't have time to go to rehab. I don't, I don't have time to read books. I don't have time to get counseling or, or try to get healthy. I don't think I need to get healthy. I don't have time to, and it's like time to what? For whatever, you know, it just keeps on going. And actually, the truth would be, time is not your enemy. Time is your friend, especially when it comes to starting over. See, when you've been through a time of pain, like we have in these past 18 months with COVID-19, it throws us off balance. It really does. 
And when you're full of fear or full of anger or resentment or jealousy, this has a huge impact on our ability to make good decisions. And I'll tell you what happens. When you're in pain, when you've been through pain, you become very self-absorbed. Like, you know, and that's just normal. That's, that's, you know, that's just the nature of pain. But, you know, and maybe that's why the people of Israel seem to, you know, get out of slavery, but they never got the slavery out of them. Instead of seeing clearly that power and the love of God, that he had showed his compassion, that he had showed his power, you know, all they could see was, I'm hungry, I want something to eat, I'm thirsty, you know, I need something to drink. When I was back in Egypt, when I was back in Egypt, you know, it was awful, but, you know, at least we had something to eat. We sat around, we got all the fish we wanted, leeks and melons and onions and all this stuff. You know, and part of it maybe was the awkward feeling of, have, of having freedom and not having someone who tells them what to do. But here's the, here's the bottom line in this. When you're in pain, when you're in pain, you're probably not in a good position to make any kind of a big decision in your life. And you need to heal up. You need time to do that. You need insight to do that. Now, these myths, I'm guessing, you know, probably seem a lot like common sense, you know, too. And you're thinking, well, of course, you know, of course, you know. I mean, experience doesn't make you wiser, it just makes you older. You think, well, of course that's true. I know that, you know. Or just because you know better doesn't mean that you're going to do better. Well, I know that, you know. Knowing doesn't mean that you're actually going to do it, you know. And time is not your enemy. Time is your friend. You know that. It's all common sense. Here's how we sneak around that, though. We sneak around the corner with, but my situation is different than everybody else's. Like, yeah, that's true for most people, but not me. I'm different. My situation is different. And I would say, and I think with quite a bit of authority, there aren't that many situations in the world. Your situation isn't any different. It's no different. Here's what's fascinating with this whole starting over thing. This is actually... God's pattern, for it seems like, for making leaders. And you find out what happens is when a person in the Bible, when God is going to make a leader, you know, there's this point up where there's this dream, and it takes it up to this point, and then something bad happens. Something happens that they didn't expect it, and they kind of get dropped off the cliff, you know? With Abraham, you know, it's like, I'm, come out of Ur, I want you, to, I'm going to create a whole new people, you're going to be the father of nations, and, and Abraham goes out and goes out, and then he sits in his tent for 25 years, time, before he starts coming out again. With Joseph, you know, he comes out, he has this amazing dream that, you know, all of the world, his brothers and his mom and his dad are all bowing down to him, you know. And then the problem is that his dreams made him hated, so he's sold off as a slave and then a prisoner. Next 17 years time. Moses. Moses, you know, God chooses him. God gives him all this education and everything like that. There, brings him out of the river and so on. And then he goes down, spends 40 years on the backside of the desert. David. David spends probably 10 years as a fugitive. It's the time. He comes up here, you know, and all the little teeny boppers, you know, when he rides in, he kills the Goliath, you know, and, and he leads the troops and so on, and he comes into town, and all the teeny boppers are, you know, swooning and singing his songs and so on, and then he basically gets thrown out of the palace. He's got this time, probably 10 years. He's a fugitive. Paul, it's the same thing. Paul, you know, he, you know, he's on the wrong track for a while. He thinks that killing Christians is the thing to do, tries to stamp out Christianity. And then, of course, he gets knocked off his horse. He meets Jesus. Jesus blinds him and says, why are you persecuting me? So Paul says he gets his act together, and he wants to be a preacher. And we find out he's going out and he's creating all this chaos, you know, and, and so on. And then 
they find that they have to send him back home where he didn't want to go, back to Tarsus. And he goes back home and lives in obscurity. And then he does these amazing things, comes out of it. So that's kind of the pattern. There's no microwaves. God doesn't microwave leaders into existence. And starting over is tough. It's tough, you know. It takes longer than you think it should take. It's more humbling than anybody wants. But what happens in this time, in this place here, is that people learn humility. And I'm telling you, if you're going to be a leader, you have to learn humility. You have to understand that. And you come out of that with a sense of calling on your life. That's what happened to every one of these. Paul writes this in the book of Romans. He says, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are calling according to his purpose for them. Everything, everything works. Everything works together for the good of those who love God. And here's what I believe. I believe that as difficult as this pandemic has been and as much inconvenience as it's caused in our culture, I believe that God, even though he didn't cause this, that God wants to use it as a lesson. And the question is, are we going to pass the test? Are we going to come out of this better than we came into it? See, all through Jesus' ministry, he taught, taught people to pray. Our Father in heaven, God cares, God saves. In one of his most famous sayings, he said this to Nicodemus, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God cares, God saves. He said that this is what you need to do. This is what God wants you to do, his will for your life. It's summed up in the word love. Love God, God cares, love others, God saves. He's called us to be a part of that process. See, the problem that the Israelites ran into is that they thought that God's job description was basically making it possible for them to consume. And see, that's, that's where we have to come out of this, you know? I mean, what, will you, what are you going to be? We've been the best consumers in history. We have been, you know? That's proven, you know? We have been great consumers, even followers of Jesus, you know? Like, we tend to come into a church, come into a setting like this and say, come on, come on, bring it on, bring it on, bring it on. This is about me, you know? I want to, you know... But the problem is, this is the calling. My life belongs to God, and I am called to serve Him, and I'm called to serve others, not just consume. That's His plan. That's His plan. God's intent was to use the nation of Israel to bless the nations, and He worked in them to accomplish that, and they kind of blew that mission. And then God, through Jesus, came to set this world right and make things right. And we are part of his mission. We are his body. Here's the deal. I think COVID-19, I think the pandemic is the lesson. And what we do next with our lives is going to be the test. What are you going to do next with your life? What's your life going to be about? Because I'll tell you, you know, you can just be angry about it. You can become bitter. You can become divisive. You can blame other people. You know, you can join the anti-vaxxer team or join the vaxxer team or whatever it is. But that is not God's will for us. God's will for us is to lead in the right direction and become the people that he's called us to be. So may it be so. Let's pray. God, these past months have been difficult months, frustrating months.
being told where we can go and where we can't go, being held back, being kept in our homes, being limited from work, being shut out when it comes to vacations and travel and restaurants and, and normal life. It, it's been very inconvenient. It's been difficult. And I pray, God, that in the times that tend to make us impatient, that we will learn patience and that you would help us to be the fruitful people that you've called us to be, to bear fruit and not just blame and complain. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.